A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and welcome to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. This week on Babbage, our science correspondent, Ananyo Bhattacharya, will be talking to us about a deadly disease that poses an imminent threat to billions of people in Asia. If yellow fever gets to Asia, you will be faced with the task of vaccinating maybe up to a billion people. That's just not a risk that we can afford to take. We'll also be hearing from researcher Sanjoy Sam, the astrobiologist, whose recent findings have sent shockwaves through the world of atmospheric science. Biology is capable of influencing the state of our planetary atmosphere to a much larger extent than we previously thought. But the fact that it could actually alter the air pressure, as in the physical state of the atmosphere, is completely novel. But first, humans have a long history of recycling and repurposing, turning what we throw away into something we can't do without. I'm joined now by Paul Markley, our innovation editor, to talk about recycling, and specifically one project that's finding yet more waste we can repurpose. Paul, what is the latest scheme? Well, I was in Leicester to see that this is also a hotbed of innovation. And there I met a gentleman called Pancholi, who is a businessman who runs a company which he founded called Just Egg. Now, Mr. Pancholi, he boils uh, 1.5 million boiled eggs a week. And these go into mayonnaise and hard-boiled eggs and scotch eggs and various other sandwiches and various sorts of foods. But he's left with, obviously, a huge amount of eggshells, a mountain of them, in fact. And these were costing him up to £45,000 a year to get carted away to landfill. He saw this as something of, well, a really waste that he'd like to do something about. So he teamed up with Andy Abbott, who's a professor at the University of Leicester and his team of researchers there in the chemistry department, to come up with a way to recycle these eggshells. And they're basically turning these eggshells into a very fine powder because it's a very tough crystalline form of calcium carbonate that shells are made from. And this is being used to bolster plastic as a filler material to make the plastic more hard-wearing. So how does the process work? Well, this mountain of eggshells begins to travel up a conveyor belt into the, the new extension to the Just Egg factory. And there they're tipped into a series of tanks where they're mixed with water and smashed up by a series of rotating blades. And then this chopped up material is allowed to stew for a bit and goes through a, a kind of process where it's mixed with a solvent. And that removes any bits of leftover egg and also the inner membrane of the egg which is an antibacterial mechanism which the egg uses to protect itself and that remains stuck inside the shell and uh, they can also recover that and that potentially has uses in the medical business maybe as a, a form of wound dressing and um, Dr Abbott and his colleagues at the University of Leicester are now investigating a possible use for that as well. Now does this technology to actually recycle the eggshells will it pay for it itself or is he still going to be out of pocket to put all the rigor and roll into the process? 
a little bit early yet to see um, how that will pan out. But as far as he's concerned, whatever he does with this, his return on investment as such is the fact that, you know, he feels quite good now that he's not putting all this material into landfill. And he's also better off to the tune of £45,000 a year and rising because those costs will only ever go up. So he, he kind of sees it as a win-win situation, to use a horrible Americanism. Quite. In fact, you could say it's a capital idea to use a horrible Britishism. Ah, but this is Leicester. Of course, this idea is not just confined to Leicester. There's various people around the world looking at this because there's a lot of eggshells and there's a lot of eggs that are eaten. Tuskegee University, there's a team there. And they told a recent meeting of the American Chemical Society that they can use ultrasound to break up these shells even finer mixing those into a certain recipe of bioplastics, they think that they can uh, improve the strength and flexibility of biodegradable plastics much more, and making them much more suitable for use as food packaging, including egg cartons. Look, this is this is ecstatic information for the egg industry. So we go from the egg shells to the packaging for the eggs. It seems like a great win for the circular economy in more ways than one. It is, but you can do this at home too. How so? Uh, there's an old wives' tale uh, that Mr. Mancholi has looked into, which is that if you put broken eggshells around plants in the garden, it stops the slugs attacking them. So they tested that, and that apparently works well too. So he may well have another product there as well. Paul Markley, thank you. It's a pleasure, Ken. And if you want to keep up with Paul and the innovations he spots, you can follow him on Twitter at Paul Markley. Now, the big news out of the academic world this week was hardly news at all. It's about understanding the world from a very, very long time ago. Sanjay Sam is an astrobiologist who works with NASA and the University of Washington, and his latest research is on the Earth's early atmosphere, as he explains. We uh, measured air pressure on Earth 2.7 billion years ago. So that was a time period where the Earth looked nothing like today. We found that air pressure was actually at most half of what it is today. The research required an ingenious method, using the relics of ancient air bubbles to deduce the air pressure from that era. We used bubbles trapped in lava flows that erupted at sea level uh, 2.7 billion years ago. The technique is actually relatively straightforward. The amount of pressure that's acting on the lava at the top of of the flow is simply air pressure, and the pressure acting on the bubbles at the bottom of the lava flow is air pressure plus the weight of the lava. So if you can measure the size of the bubbles at the top of the flow and at the bottom of the flow and measure the thickness of the lava flow, then you can back-calculate the actual air pressure. According to Sanjoy, the researchers had gone in expecting quite different results. Because the sun was fainter back then, I think the scientific community dominantly expected a higher pressure to, to allow more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to keep the planet warm. Because if you took the modern atmosphere today and placed it 2.7 billion years ago when the sun was fainter, the planet should have completely frozen over, right? But there's plenty of evidence in a rock record for liquid water. And so something was keeping the planet warm, and that something is greenhouse gases. So the fact that the air pressure was lower tells us that it was actually perhaps more potent greenhouse gases than the typical carbon dioxide that caused it, most likely methane and uh, perhaps even water vapor. For Sanjoy, the major implication of this research is giving new prominence to the role of living things. Biology is capable of influencing the state of a planetary atmosphere to a much larger extent than we previously thought. We knew biology could affect the chemistry of our atmosphere. After all, all the oxygen we breathe is a result of biology. But the fact that it could actually alter the air pressure, as in the physical state of the atmosphere, is completely novel.
My thanks to Sanjoy Sam. And if you have any thoughts on what we've discussed today or there's a scientific question you'd like Babbage to address, you can also tweet us at Economist Radio or tweet me at KN Kukier. Now, science is constantly called upon to solve our problems, whether it's the issue of what we do with old eggshells or the most searching questions about the planet we call home. But in recent years, some of the most urgent, high-stakes problems we've had to approach have come the way of immunologists, epidemiologists, and physicians. And that together, we will build up a network throughout the world to combat SARS. It's much more difficult than SARS. This swine flu is a lot more contagious substantial flu illness in most of the country. This week, we will cross 9,000 cases of Ebola. It's a severe disease which has a high case fatality rate, even with the best of care. To stop a disease that could kill hundreds of thousands, inflict horrific suffering, and move rapidly across borders. From AIDS and SARS to Ebola, the pressure is always on researchers to turn out quick solutions to the enormous and ever-evolving crises caused by potential pandemics. Alongside Zika, we're now facing up to the challenge posed by yellow fever, which is currently spreading in Angola. Hundreds have already died with fears that millions more could be exposed in the coming months, carrying the risk that the disease will spread further into Africa and beyond. I'm joined by Ananyo Bhattacharya, a science correspondent for The Economist who has been following the story of the epidemic. Ananyo, let's start with the disease itself. What does yellow fever do to those who have it? Yellow fever is a hemorrhagic fever. That means most people that contract it will experience a sort of fever, nausea, vomiting and uh, muscle pain. But then in um, a minority of cases, uh, probably about 15%, the disease comes back. Uh, in a much more severe form. And then you get the sort of more classic symptoms of internal bleeding, bleeding from uh, eyes, mouth and nose, and severe abdominal pain. And people will tend to become jaundiced, and hence the name yellow fever. I presume it's also fatal. It is fatal overall in about 4 or 5% of cases. In cases where people develop the, the more severe form, uh, the fatality rates are much higher, up to 40 50%. Are there treatments for the disease? No, there are no treatments for the disease. If you contract yellow fever, uh, the best that anybody can do for you is take away the symptoms, reduce your fever, and hope for the best. But there is a vaccine. Okay, so how does the vaccine work? So it's a live attenuated vaccine. It's grown in chicken eggs. And the idea is that the virus becomes very good at infecting chick fetuses. Um, And as it adapts to infecting chick fetuses, it becomes worse at infecting humans. So at the end of the process, what you've got is a virus that's more or less harmless to humans, but harmful enough that it can um, stimulate immune response in humans. And so they become immune. It's very effective. Over 99% of people that receive the vaccine Uh, get immunity. So that sounds great. So it seems to me that what you'd be able to do is just ramp up production for the vaccine and we can staunch down on this threat of yellow fever. There's the problem. Because it's produced in eggs, the whole procedure is quite slow. There are only four institutes that make it. Because of all of the safety procedures that you have to go through to ensure that the vaccine doesn't in fact, in fact, humans, it's difficult to ramp up. The producers, the four producers have been increasing supplies, but we've consistently had 
too few doses of the vaccine to hit the targets for vaccination. So we know this disease is currently ravaging Angola. Where do you expect it to go next? So the apocalyptic scenario is that it spreads to Asia. Now, Angola has probably over 100,000 Chinese workers. When they head back to to China, they are taking the disease with them. Now, in March, uh, China registered its first ever cases of imported yellow fever. Um, It now has a total of 11. So many factors suggest that um, yellow fever should have got to Asia. It has the mosquito. The mosquito is widespread. And there's a reasonably uh, frequent travel now. You've got airline links taking people to Thailand, uh, from Africa and, and elsewhere. So what is the WHO doing to limit its spread? The WHO is using what stocks it has to try and vaccinate Angolans, people in the Congo. There's a separate outbreak now in Uganda. Namibia had its first case. Uh, So they're pouring resources into vaccinating um, Africans. Are there any other things we can do to prevent this disease other than vaccination? No, but there is more we can do to vaccinate more people. What we can do is just use a fifth of the dose Uh, of the vaccine to make it spread further. Now, the WHO has been reluctant to do this. There is very good evidence that adults will gain full immunity from just a fifth of the dose, but there are some doubts that children will be fully immune. But even if they are not, they will gain some immunity, and that might get us through the current outbreak. Now, Ananyo, let me ask a sensitive question. In the past, there's been lots of epidemics that have captured the headlines. I'm thinking of Ebola, SARS, and swine flu. And it's never been the calamity that many of the people predicted it would be. What makes you think that this time around with yellow fever, this is really an urgent crisis and not something that's just going to be a flash in the pan in the media? Well, Ken, part of the reason those epidemics didn't turn into the crises that uh, the media predicted is that the WHO was able to take action on time. Now, there is a low likelihood that yellow fever will become the crisis that we're talking about. We just should not take the risk that it will. If yellow fever gets to Asia, it will establish itself there in in the tropical jungles where monkeys carry it, and it will be there forevermore, which means you will be faced with the task of vaccinating maybe up to a billion people, maybe more, routinely. That's just not a risk that we can afford to take. Ananyo Bhattacharya, thank you. Thanks very much, Ken. And if you'd like to see more from Ananyo and updates on yellow fever, you can follow him at Ananyo on Twitter. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and that's it for this week's Babbage. Coming up on next week's podcast, we'll be looking at how social media platforms are transforming from impartial conduits of information to organizations where editors, disguised as algorithms, can subtly skew the news agenda. Goodbye. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.